0: Uh, We want you guys to be able to have the word of God in your hands. And those are just handy little books that you could take notes, uh, bring those to one of our gospel communities as we study uh, the word of God together. We care deeply about uh, the Bible here. Uh, We love it at this church. We think it is how God speaks to us today. And so uh, we want to give that to you uh, as a gift. So uh, let me just kind of recap where we've been the last two weeks. We are in week three Um, of our our series in the book of Joshua uh, this morning. And in chapter one, kind of what we saw was this theme that God was laying out for us to be strong and courageous. Uh, What uh, the people of Israel were facing as they were in the wilderness on the uh, western side, excuse me, on the eastern side of the Jordan River uh, is they were preparing to enter into the promised land that God had promised them. And Moses, their leader, this guy who had faithfully uh, put up with Israel for years and years and led them out of Egypt uh, where they were slaves, is now dead. And so the nation of Israel is kind of in this holding pattern with where, where they're kind of like, what do we do? Like, what, what what next, God? you You took us out of the land of Egypt. You have promised to give us this land. And now, Right. You took our leader and he's dead. And so they're 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 kind of concerned about what their next steps are. And so God meets them through this guy named Joshua, who he's going to have lead them into the promised land so that God would fulfill his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on. And so we see God coming to Joshua saying, Joshua, I've appointed you for this task you're going to lead Israel, be strong and courageous in light of the promises that I've given you. And then we moved into chapter two and we saw this really, really cool story about this prostitute named Rahab. And we saw kind of two things. We saw God saved her. And because God saved her, she exhibited and exercised great faith in him right? After she was saved. And Rahab has this kind of unique story in the redemptive arc of scripture in that she's an integral part of both the destruction of Jericho and the fulfillment of God's promise as his people enter into the promised land of Canaan and kind of possess it. But we also see in the New Testament that Rahab ends up being a part of the line of Jesus that she's the great, 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 great. And I don't know how many greats it is. Uh, somebody who's much better at math than me and is into you know the ancestry.com stuff can figure out how many it is. But she is a descendant, right, of Jesus. Right? So here you have God using a pagan prostitute and sex worker to both help God fulfill his promise of possessing the land for Israel. And the promised Messiah would come through her family line, right? And one of the things I made sure to point out last week as we were talking about that is no matter where you're at this morning, no matter what is going on in your life, if God can save Rahab, he can save you, right? If God can reach out into a pagan nation to a prostitute and brothel owner inside of Jericho, He can reach you, he can forgive you, he can show mercy to you, and he's not done. And so we're seeing time and time again, we're just two chapters in at this point, right? What we're seeing is this consistent theme throughout the book of Joshua, God is faithful. That God is faithful to his people, he's faithful to his promises, and the same God we see in the book of Joshua is the same God we worship today. And we, we work through this so that we might see that faithfulness and worship and trust him. And so I want you to think about this for a second. You guys can throw out answers for me as I ask this question. What is the most valuable currency in the world? Not after this past week, Daniel. Gold. Not the, notice how no one's saying the U.S. dollar, by the way, right? We know, right? All right. So I hear I hear your answers, and here's what I would say to you: They're all wrong. Trust. Trust is the most valuable currency, universally around the world. It's in every culture. It's in every people group. And if you if you ever talk to a business person, right? without trust, there is no hope of future business, right? And if trust is broken, ask anybody who's ever been in a long-term relationship, right? If trust is broken, right, what begins to fracture? The relationship. Whether that is a business relationship or an intimate dating relationship or a marriage or a friendship, That the moment trust is broken, right, we start seeing fractures and we see issues. Now, I want you to sit and think for a moment and think about who is someone that I trust in my life and why do I trust them All right if you're taking notes right write down that person and just jot down a bullet point or two of why you trust that person and a number of people may come to your mind and for various reasons as you as you're writing that down for me right the first thing that pops in my my head is my wife Jackie I'm contractually obligated to say that by the way But in all seriousness, she's the first name that pops into my mind when I think, okay, who is someone that I trust? And and there are a number of reasons, but if I had to distill it down to three points, I know her to be kind of these three things in my life. I know her to be wise, right? As long as I have known her, she has displayed not just intelligence, but a gracefulness to that intelligence that she applies it to the world around her, right? She has consistently displayed to me that she's going to make good decisions, especially in light of God and his word, right? And apply them to her life and those around her. She's also displayed to me over the course of the last 12 plus years that she's faithful, right? That that she has been there for me when she and I both have experienced some of the most difficult and trying times in our lives. She was there for the death of my grandfather. She was there through the highs and lows of church planting. She's been there through the ups and downs of parenting. She's been there as we've dealt with a son that has special needs. And through all of those difficulties we have experienced, she has remained consistent and faithful. Not perfect. I think one of the things that we tend to do to people, right, as we expect and demand perfection from them, And that's not what I'm saying that Jackie has been, but she has been consistent and faithful over time. And lastly, I would say this, right, she's been present. She has been there for me. She's been there for our family and for others, many of you in this room. And with her presence has come a calming assurance to those she is around unless you're on the interstate with her when she's not driving. He hates 18 wheelers and can't handle not not being in charge of the vehicle when we're But she brings a calming assurance in most other situations. Right? She has a servant's attitude and a willingness to listen and help when needed. And hopefully whoever you listed, right on on that piece of paper this morning, right, carries some of those qualities and characteristics or likely some of the same ones, or maybe a variation of them. And I was very, very uh, intentional about kind of listing those things about Jackie out. One, because I believe them to be true in our relationship. But also because if you look at Joshua chapter three this morning, which we're going to do, right, what we're going to see is we're going to see that that God is going to speak to Joshua, and that Joshua is going to speak to uh, the people uh, of Israel, and three separate times throughout Joshua chapter 3, we're going to see this phrase, that you may know. And what we're going to see is that when that phrase is uttered throughout this chapter in Joshua, we're going to see that God is displaying something about his character so that we might trust him. And in the same way that Jackie has displayed this character regularly, right, as I've lived with her and I trust her, God is doing the same thing with Joshua and the nation of Israel saying, hey, you can trust me, right? And here is what you need to know about me so that you might walk forward in trusting me, right? And so we're going to see three things right? We're going to see God is wisdom or that God is wise and that we can trust him because of that. We're going to see that God is faithful and we can trust him because of his faithfulness. And we're going to see that God is present. And because God is present, we can trust him. So turn over, if you haven't already, to Joshua chapter three, and let's look at verses one through four. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about two days thousand cubits in length. All right, so I want to stop there. Okay, so here you have, right, Joshua, the nation of Israel. They've arrived at the Jordan River. They're ready to cross it so they might begin the work of dispossessing the land and taking it over, and they've camped for three days. They're ready to cross, and God says, okay, listen up. The Ark of the Covenant is supposed to go out in front of you, and then you're going to follow it, and you're going to stay two thousand cubits behind it. So, First things first, right? what is the Ark of the Covenant? Because some of you guys may have no idea what that is. The the Ark of the Covenant was best described kind of as a box that could be placed on poles and would be carried by the the priests of uh, Israel. And the Ark of the Covenant represented uh, God's presence to Israel. It was the holiest physical possession of the Israelites. And inside of that box, it held three symbols that represented Israel's relationship with God. There were three things inside of it. The first one was the Ten Commandments that God had delivered to Moses on Mount Sinai. Therefore, it displayed God's commands, God's guidance, God's accessibility. And so they placed that inside of this ark that God had commanded them to build. Also inside the ark was the high priest's rod. It was Aaron's rod, and they placed it in there. And what that kind of represented was God's power right, with the people of Israel. And the third thing was a jar of manna. And If you don't know what manna was, it was the food that just kept appearing every day for Israel. It was, and so what this did is this represented to Israel God's provision to them in the wilderness when they didn't have anything. And so th- this was a, a spo- supposed to be for Israel this reminder of God's faithfulness to them and His presence so that they might trust Him. And they treated the object as, as very, very important. And so jo- Joshua's talking to Israel, and he says, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, Then you shall set out from your place and follow it. And they were called to cross the Jordan when the priests set out. Yet they were told to keep their distance from the ark. And it says that they were supposed to stay behind by 2,000 cubits. Now, is anybody in here measuring cubits regularly? I didn't think so. Okay. So uh, if you had 2,000 cubits, that's about 1,000 yards. So imagine 10 football fields, and that's how far away they were supposed to stay from the ark as it went out. And the question I kind of was asking myself is like, why, why would God do that? Like, why would God tell Israel to stay so far back from the ark as he's sending it out? And I, and, and I think, right, what God is trying to display is this. Because the ark represents God's presence, but it also reflects his holiness. It, the command... Uh, of Joshua to Israel kind of shows us two things about God and who He is. here. It shows us that He is accessible to His people, and He comes to them in His presence that He might guide and lead them. But it also shows that His glory and His holiness is something totally different and separate from the people that He loves, knows as His own, and therefore. Israel is called to respond to him with an attitude and a posture of reverence. I think, like one of the things, having grown up going to the church as a kid, kind of being in and out over time, and then coming to what I would consider to be saving faith in God later in life, one of the things that I'm very, very thankful for Uh, in the church, at least in the U.S., is that I think the church for some time now has been doing a really good job of preaching about the closeness or accessibility that we can have with our creator. uh, One of the things we frequently preach here from this stage that we teach and share with one another is, hey, God is accessible. like The creator of the universe knows you and wants to be known by you and that you can know him. And so we preach this kind of big message of connecting with God. We use terms like, oh, it's a personal relationship with Jesus. And we use all this this terminology of closeness. And all of that would be true, right? That in Christ, right, God has made a way for us to know God and be known by God when there was no way previously. But one of the things that maybe we've lost in making sure that we communicate that point consistently is this idea that God is holy. Scripture frequently uses that terminology to describe who and what God is. And that term means separate or different. You know, there are verses in scripture that say things like, God's ways are not your ways. And I think because we tend to have this affiliation or closeness with God and this familiarity with his word, and we're told regularly that God wants intimacy with us, we forget that just because God wants and desires intimacy with us does not mean he thinks and acts like us, right? Psalm 96, verse 10, right, kind of puts it this way. Let me share this with you. Right, and talking about the holiness of God and his character and his nature, right, the psalmist says this say among the nation, the Lord reigns. What does that mean? God is in control, he is the ruler. And look at what it says next yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the people with equity. What is that saying? Right, it's saying God, right, at his very essence, right, is both creator and reigning. Right. If you look at verse nine, right, look at what it says right before it says that truth about God. It says, worship the Lord in the splendor of what? Holiness. And then what does it say? Tremble before him, all the earth. Guys, I don't want us to ever lose, if we're a professing follower of Jesus, I don't want us to ever lose that that idea that God is accessible or that he wants intimacy with us. I don't want us to ever lose that. But one of the things we need to recapture is this idea of reverence and holiness before God. What that really means. Right, the psalmist says there that we should tremble before his holiness. Right? I mean, think, think about the magnitude and grandeur and power of God that that type of language would be used to describe how holy and powerful and mighty God is. That to simply stand before his presence would cause us to tremble. Have you ever been just like, You've been somewhere out in, outside of the state of Florida, right? I'm going to make fun of creation again. So here you go. You Floridians that love Florida, I'm about to make you angry again. Have you ever been outside the state of Florida and been looking out, maybe on top of a mountain or whatever else, and just been awestruck by the beauty of creation? Right? Throw that picture up for me, will you, Leonard? Right. This is a picture not far from where I grew up. It's called Skyline Drive in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. There are places that are like this, by the way, guys. This is called a mountain, an elevation above 50 feet, right? And and you can walk along or drive along Skyline Drive and see scenes like this all over the place, right? And if you've ever found yourself kind of in that position, there's something almost primal in humans that when we look out over this stuff, we're just, we're in awe of it, right? And I give Florida a hard time, but standing on the, the west coast of Florida and looking out over the Gulf while the sun sets kind of does that for me too. But It's the beauty and majesty of creation and what God has done Right, that, that feeling of like how insignificant I am as I stand on top of a mountain, look out over Skyline Drive, or as I stand on the beach on the west coast of Florida looking out over the Gulf, that feeling of insignificance and light of creation around me is God trying to communicate to you, you are minuscule compared to me. You guys are like, how dare you say something like that? One, it's true. It's a good thing. It is good That God is bigger and better than you are. If you want to actually worship and know God and believe in God, you want one who is bigger, better, stronger, and infinitely more holy than you are. And so, as we see God make this command to the Israelites through Joshua, right, to honor his holiness. And step out and follow the ark towards the Jordan, right? What he is communicating is, I am holy. You need to understand the magnitude of who I am and what I've done, right? So that we might worship, know him. Now, what we also see moving forward in verse 4 is this. And look at what God says in the second half here. He says, Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Right? God is saying through Joshua, Israel, you've never been here before. You need my wisdom and guidance as you enter the land. Right? What he's communicating is, is follow me, follow my way, God's way is best. Not your wisdom, not the counsel of the elders. No, as you enter in to dispossess this land, following me is the way to go. Now, let me me turn this and relate it to us a couple thousand years later. Never once in the 17 plus years that I have been a follower of Jesus, have I ever had someone say to me, I regret obeying God's commands. Not once. Wouldn't you think after being a Christian for years and years, I would have heard that from somebody at this point in time? Like, you know, pastor, this didn't really work out. I think God might have been wrong on that one. Right? I, I have 17 plus years of it. Now, I'm not saying it's always easy. Don't hear me. Some of you guys are like, oh, see, he's just saying, like, if we just do everything, right, it's easy. Not what I'm communicating. Sometimes following God is the hardest way to choose. But what I am saying is I have never, in my 17 plus years of being a follower of Christ, had someone say to me, I made a mistake. I listened to God in his word. Right? I've heard plenty of people say, yeah, I knew what God communicated to me there or commanded to me there and I didn't follow it and it didn't go well. I've heard plenty of that, but I've never heard someone say to me, yeah, following God was a mistake. Right? As Matt Chandler frequently says in his sermons, if you ever listen to him, no one robs you of more joy than you. Right? If you know Right? What God says to be true about following him and following his wisdom and his guidance, and you choose to disobey it and it doesn't go well with you, God didn't mess up. You robbed yourself of joy. Right? To not follow God's commands is to reject wisdom and to follow your own way. Right? And so here we see in Joshua 3 that God is revealing himself to Israel to be followed because he is wisdom. Right, to, to follow him is to know how it may go well with them, right? To trust him because he is wisdom, right? As Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord, and that word fear means reverence, right? That understanding or that grasping of the holiness and the grandeur and the majesty of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. What we see regularly here is that through Israel, right, God is leading the way for them, so that they might know how it might go well with them. Right, He is wisdom. He's their guide, that they may know He is good and for them. As you move into verse seven. Right, the next thing we're going to see, not only is God wisdom to them to be their guide, right? but he is faithful. Look at verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Place yourself in Joshua's shoes here for a second. This is, this is going to be huge for him. He's been given this difficult task of leading this very difficult group of people on a military conquest of people that have defenses and are more highly trained militarily speaking. And God says, hey, as I was with Moses, so I will be this is huge for Israel because they struggled to believe that God was going to fulfill his promises. Right, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the first sin, right? what is revealed to us there about Adam and Eve and their relationship with God and why that gets fractured? They fail to trust that God is really good. Think about what the serpent says time and time again. Did God really say? He's planting doubt in Eve's mind that God is trustworthy. And so what is God having to do time and time again throughout Scripture? Guys, I created you. You can trust me. I'm good. I'm, I'm wiser than you. You know, I made you. I'm faithful. You're not faithful. I am. I do what I say I'm gonna do. Right? Hey, just remember, remember Moses? Remember that guy? Let's just go back to Exodus for a second. Right? Remember, remember how I was faithful to him? Let's think about that for a minute. Let's talk about my faithfulness. Right? Remember when I took Moses' staff and turned it into a snake to display before Pharaoh my power? Right? Remember the Passover after all the after all the plagues? Remember that? How I protected. Your firstborn son. Remember Remember that? How about when, when you left, Pharaoh finally sent you out. You were backed up to the Red Sea. You had nowhere to go. And, you know, I just casually pardoned it for you. Remember that? Oh, you still don't trust me yet. Okay. Um, what about how I provided food for you for 40 years out of nothing? And we have a jar of it left in the Ark of the Covenant just so you don't forget. Remember that? Oh, how about how when we were in the wilderness, I appeared to Moses on Mount Sinai so that I could communicate to you how you are to live and how it may go well with you. And here he's saying to Joshua and communicating to Israel, Hey, I was with Moses, and I was faithful, and I'm going to be Joshua, Going to be faithful again, because I made a promise to Abraham, and I keep my promises. Right? This is this is the God we're dealing with, that He bends over backwards to display His wisdom and His faithfulness time and time and time again. Right? If you look at verse eight. He says, and as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. We're going to get to that in a minute. Pretty bizarre uh, words or uh, commands to give there. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. All right? He commands the priests, go stand in the waters of the Jordan and the, by the way, at this point in time, it was likely harvest time. so the, the banks of the Jordan River would have been overflowing. So pretty deep. Anyone ever play Oregon Trail and die trying to cross the river? Right, this is what we're facing right now for Israel, right? How are we going to ford the river? We're going to pay the ferry fee. We're going to try to ford it. We're going to go around. What are we going to do? And God's about to make something happen here. He's going to show off his power and faithfulness in just a moment. But we're seeing that God is promising his faithfulness through Joshua. Like Moses, God provides godly leadership so that his people might be led even in the most difficult challenges. Here's a question for you to ponder and think through this morning. Has God provided for you Godly men or women who might be wisdom for you to lead, but deeper and more abiding trust in him. Who has God placed in your life? Leaders who love him and will point you to him. And like Israel, right? God asks of us, because I have these leaders in my life as well, guys. Trust that leadership to point you to Jesus. Trust that leadership to point you to your creator so you might see and experience his wisdom and his goodness. So we see now, we've seen it twice now, right? Joshua says that you may know, or God says it to Joshua once and Joshua says it once to the people, right? That you may know God and trust his wisdom, that you may know God and trust his, his faithfulness. So the last question that Israel would have been asking them is, well, how do I know God's going to be faithful this time? Because as I said earlier, they struggle with this constantly. It's almost as if the serpent's staying there, sitting there, staying with them again. Has God really said that he's going to give you the land? Has God really promised to you that he will make you a people and give you the land of Canaan? And so the last thing we're going to see is God's promise that he is present. Look at verse 10. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know. There it is, right? Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. See, see that terminology, right? Earlier on, we had the presence of God and his holiness right, being something we need to take seriously. And yet, what is Joshua saying here? God's among us. He's present. Look at what he says. And that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, the Girgashites, the Amurites, and the Jebusites. God is going to go before us, Israel, and he's going to drive out our enemies. God's saying, I'm going to go before you and cause you to win the military battles because you shouldn't win them otherwise. Right? My presence is going to do things like create confusion, give you the upper hand, and I will be with you. And then he says this, here's how you're going to know that I'm going to do this, because they're going to demand a sign. That's what Israel always does. Right? We need well, we to know you're really going to do this, God. Otherwise, we're not going to cross. Right? So look at what he says. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall what? Be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand up in one heap. All right, so here's what God is saying. Right? You want to know that I'm with you? All right, send that ark into the water, into the Jordan, as it's flowing. And as it goes in there, I'm going to part the waters again so you can cross. I'm going to perform another supernatural miracle that defies the law of physics. And I know the science guys are in here like, what? Right. philosophically, if God is God, he can bend his own rules. And that's exactly what he does here. Right, He bends his own rules. He's going to cause the waters to part and God's presence is going to go before them. And just as he provides safe passage across the Jordan, he's going to provide safe passage for them in Canaan. His presence in crossing the Jordan The Jordan is going before them so that they might take hold of the land God has promised them. That's like, look, I'm going to show off again. Sorry, you need it. You constantly forget what I've done, so I'm going to show off again. And then you will know, Israel, that I am with you. Trust my wisdom. Trust my faithfulness. Trust that I am present and that it will go well with you in the land. And Look at verse 14. He does exactly what he says he's going to do. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. See, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that's beside Zarathon. And those flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. God just makes the Hoover Dam. Just right there. You're done. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And what does it say happens next? And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Priests enter the water. The water walls up. People cross dry land easily and safely opposite of Jericho. Now one, that's a miracle, right? But the more beautiful thing about this miracle is not so much that it happened, but what it communicates to Israel. You can trust me. Follow my word. Believe that I'm going to be faithful to my promises. Know that I And present with you and set out on what I have called you to do. To take the land and be a people so that you might be a city on a hill for me in a place where no one knows who their God or who their creator is. And one of the things I said two weeks ago is the beauty of that call that has been given to Israel, that call to enter the land, to dispossess, to dispossess it, to conquer it, and then to be God's people, surrounded by people that don't know God and are hostile to him, is not very different from the call that is on our lives if we're followers of Jesus. Right To fulfill the great commission, Right to tell people the good news of what Christ has done is dangerous and risky at times. The same way it would have been for Israel to cross the Jordan and enter the promised land. the same God who is faithful to Israel is faithful to his church. His wisdom for his church is present with his church. This is how God wants us to know him and wants us to know how he works with his people that he is wisdom, that he is accessible for us, and he wants to lead us so that it may go well with us. That he is faithful through leadership and through his word. And that he is present and goes before us because God is the same today in May of 2021 that he was some 3,000 years ago plus with the nation of Israel. Turn over to John chapter 17 with me. Now I want us to see Jesus' words here at the beginning of the book of John. Help us to see that the, this same pattern we see God live out with Israel, right, is the same pattern that he's going to live out through his son, Jesus Christ, in relation to us, his church. Look at John chapter 17, starting in verse 1. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus asks to be glorified. Why? what's, What's going on here? He asks to be glorified so that we may have eternal life with him. And know our God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Those are the exact words that Jesus says there in John chapter 17, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. But the same way that God seeks to make himself known, his power, his wisdom, his presence to Israel through Joshua, through Moses, through, through miracles throughout the Old Testament. He ultimately does the same for us through Jesus. I mean, think about this, right? God displays his wisdom ultimately to us through Christ. If you turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at what Paul says to the Corinthian church. Starting in uh, verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became what? Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boasts only in the Lord. Right? So, what, what is Paul saying there? Paul's saying, Jesus is wisdom. I love how if you ever talk to somebody, right? And one of the things I like to do when I'm talking with non-believers is just like try to kind of get a, a framework of where they are with the commands of God and scripture and their own obedience. And like, I'll do something simple, like bring out the 10 commandments. And people are like, yeah, I follow that pretty well. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, let's go over to Matthew chapter five and see if that's true or not. Because right, people be like, I never murdered anybody. And it's like, well, <laughs> we should go read Jesus's standard of that. If you've ever looked at somebody with anger, you have committed murder in your heart. Anyone here still not guilty? Better put my hand down. Right? That the standard is so much greater because God's holiness is so much greater than we dare imagine. And what Paul is saying here is like, look, when Christ came, that wisdom of God was made manifest and realized before us. As J. A. Metter says regarding the wisdom of God in Christ, Jesus is wisdom. He is the Proverbs wrapped in flesh. They are animated and fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. So if you've ever studied the Proverbs and you're like, man, what would it look like if somebody actually lived this out? Jesus did it. He is the manifestation of the wisdom we see in Solomon, the glory of God that we see in the book of Psalms, that Jesus is that made flesh and realized before us. And so Jesus is God's wisdom displayed to us. He's also his faithfulness displayed for us. Right? Look again at John chapter 17. Right? Look at what Jesus said in verses four and five as he was speaking to the father. This says, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You right? see what Jesus is saying there? Father, you sent me to herald the coming of the kingdom. You sent me to fulfill the law. You sent me to fulfill your promise. And in a few minutes, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be crucified and he's going to be buried. And here's what he's saying to the Father Father, I'm going to do all that because it is your perfect will for me that I might be faithful to the task that you have given me. Just as Joshua is faithful to lead Israel into the promised land, Jesus faithfully went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin because it was the Father's perfect will for him and for us. And he says, I, God displays his work and his faithfulness in Jesus. And lastly, in Christ, his presence is among us and put on display. Turn over to Philippians 2. That's where we're gonna finish today. Philippians chapter two, starting in verse three. By the way, if you were ever wondering, hey, I'm just like socially awkward. Uh, I, I don't know how to relate with people. I don't know how to start conversations with people. Paul gives you everything you need to know right here, starting in verse three, right? If you're like, I don't know how to have a conversation. I don't know how to talk, right? Listen to what Paul says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. See what he's saying there. Right, esteem the other person as more important than you, and it's going to go well. Love on them. Right? Look at what he says in verse four: Let each of you what look not out only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Right. Easy. To create a relationship with somebody and and and. and display some sort of relationship with them and create a conversation with them if you are seeking that you want to get to know them and love them. I have people tell me this all the time because some of you guys are going out with me on campus before where I do that weird thing where I'm the crazy Christian who walks up and invites you to church and then just starts a conversation with you. And I've had students over the years at UF be like Kevin that can't work. Jehovah's Witnesses do that and that cannot work. I'm like don't tell God that cuz he uses me all the time right? And people will be like, well, I don't know how you do it, Kevin. Like, you just have, like, no filter. And it's like, well, that is kind of true. Like, it's awkward. The first, like, 15 seconds are always awkward. Any relationship you ever start is going to be that way, so just get over that. They might think I'm weird. You are. It's okay. There's no way you're as weird as I am. Ask my wife. Like, guess what? They're going to discover it at some point. Get it over in the first 15 seconds. Okay, so I just walk up. I'm like, hey, I'm Kevin, I'm inviting people to Aletheia. Yes, I am one of those weird people who is coming up and starting a conversation with you about God. They're thinking it, get it out there. And then guess what I start doing? I want to get to know them. And by the way, it's not a bait and switch tactic. Do you know why I want to get to know them? Because God knows them and loves them and has commanded that I know them and love them as well because they belong to him. And it is the call of God on my life and on your life, if you are a follower of Jesus, to esteem others as more important than yourselves. And to get over your hang-ups with feeling weird or awkward around people and to instead display love and care towards other people to get to know them and have a conversation with them. You might say, well, that's this easy for you to say, Kevin, you're outgoing. Yes. But God has asked this of you. He's not asking you to do anything he hasn't done himself. Look at what Paul says next, starting in verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's like, look, this is something that you can do if you are in Christ. Why? Who though he was in the form of God, did not count Equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That what Paul saying there? God asking you to love on other people and esteem them as more important than yourself is what he did for us in Christ. By putting on human flesh, being willing to be the propitiation for our sin so that the wrath of God for our rebellion might be satisfied, Christ humbled himself and died for us. And how did he do that? Through his presence. By being here. Actually, physically coming to our side. So, you may be sitting there this morning, right? And you may be asking yourself the same question whether you're a believer. And follower or disciple of Jesus here this morning, or not, right? You may, believers ask themselves a lot of the same questions non believers ask How do I know God is worth following? How do do I know He's worthy of of my attention, my affections, my obedience? How how do I know that? I've been walking with Jesus for 17 years. I ask myself that question sometimes How can I know? Because I'm like Israel. I see God's faithfulness, and then two weeks later, I'm like, is God really good? And I forget. And God faithfully, as he does with Israel, shows up to us time and time again. The way that he did with Israel, with the ark going before them, using Joshua, and through the miracle of his presence, parting the Jordan, says to them, so that you may know that you can trust me and follow me guys, for us, we find that in Jesus. He is worthy that we can turn to him, that we can trust him, that we can know his words to be wise and our guide, that we can know his leadership in the church, that he is the chief shepherd over his bride, the body of Christ, the church, and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because the world's been trying to stomp the church out for 2,000 years. It's not going anywhere. I don't care what the current cultural climate is. I have no worries about the church at all. None. You think America and the Enlightenment is stronger than Rome? Let me break. We aren't that powerful. The church will prevail Jesus and his lordship over it. Here's what Jesus promised his disciples right before he ascended into heaven. I am with you always until the end of the age. Church, that is the promise God has given us. That he is with us, his bride that we might fulfill the call on our lives to declare the beauty and the majesty of what Jesus has done to an unbelieving world around us. He's our wisdom. He's our promise keeper. He is present. Let's pray that we might know that.